0: of the text. John chapter 1 is where we are going to be this morning. Uh, John 1 verses 1 through 3, and particularly at one point I decided I thought I was going to do John 1, 1 through 5, and then I realized that y'all didn't probably want to sit for two hours uh, as I walked through this passage. So with that being said, we're going to tackle verses 1, 2, and 3, um, and we're going to tackle them based upon a couple of things. First and foremost, we're going to deal with one major, major foundational truth for the Christian life. It is that Christ is God. Um, Let me be abundantly clear to you. If Christ is not God, then each and every one of us are first and foremost idolaters. We are worshiping a creature that is clearly forbidden in scripture for us to lay our uh, affections for us to say we're going to be obedient to we're going to submit to the authority of Christ and if he is not god then ultimately what we are are people who have created for ourselves and are worshipping something that is a creature regardless of his standing perhaps you can assume that he is the first creature created that he has some grand exalted point but let's be serious Christ i mean god has has made it abundantly clear that he alone is to be worshipped And so if we bow on our faces before Christ and he is not the full possessor of deity, if he is not God, then we are idolaters and we gather for no reason at all. No reason at all. If Christ is not God, then he is not able to save. If Christ is not God, he is not worthy of our affections and he is not worthy of our devotion. And so with that being said, what I'd like to point out to you this morning is uh, the, the counterpoint, that he actually is who he says he is. When we look at John chapter 1, it's abundantly clear. Um, I love what, uh, what Spurgeon said in regard to this. He says this, John is the majestic evangelist. He is the high-soaring eagle with piercing eyes. His is the gospel of the Son of God. We cannot describe the, de- the deity of Christ in clearer language than John uses. He was with God. He was God. He did the works of God, for he was creator. Now listen to this. If any doubt his deity, they must do so in distinct defiance of the language of the Holy Scriptures. Understand that when we approach this topic, I'm not bringing you something new. Um, This was a moment in history in about 300 A.D., where a council gathered, they discussed these things. Because there was one man in particular named Arius who was running around saying that Christ was the first creature of God. That he was a created being. And they gathered, they begin to discuss these things, and ultimately the conclusion they came to is this man Arius deserved to be condemned and excommunicated from the church. For he does not preach a Christ who is able to save. He does not preach the Christ of scriptures. Now, the reason I would bring this up is because for some reason we are still debating this topic today. I've gotten three phone calls this week, this week, on is Christ actually God? Um, not, not from our people, from people talking with others And so I want to tackle that issue. I want to give you a couple of major points to prove that to be the case. All pulling from John chapter 1, I may bring up some other passages as well. But by the end of this morning, my hope is that each and every one of us has a great calm assurance. And as we already should if we be in Christ. But for those of us who have encounters with those who would contradict the teachings of Scripture. That we would have clear evidences and be able to lay out very clearly what the Scriptures actually teach. So... With that being said, let's stand together as we read God's word. John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it let's pray together. Father, uh, we are grateful that you did not leave us wondering, but you made it abundantly clear who, your, uh, who Christ was. And Lord, as we come this morning, I come confessing to you weakness. Lord, that um, feeble and frail and tired as I am, Lord, your word is powerful, it's authoritative, And Lord, my prayer is that what we would see this morning is a demonstration of uh, of strength made perfect in weakness. Your strength made perfect in weakness. And so, Father, would you reveal Christ to us? Would you make him clear that we might love him all the more? It is in the name of Christ and through his precious blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, John chapter 1. Um, as we begin, John begins in a very unique way, and actually there are great parallels between, between John chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 1. There's this very clear parallel of in the beginning. And so I want you to notice the language here, because we're going to walk straight through this text together. If you have your eyes on the page, we're going to be directly in the text. So it says, in the beginning. Now I want to point out a couple of things to you real quickly about this simple phrase. First and foremost, one of the words that we just read is not actually in the Greek, The. Uh, the V is actually not there. There is no article before beginning. Now, this is very important, actually. When we, we look at this text, we, we, we assume, and really anytime someone says in the beginning, your natural assumption is is in the beginning of what? That's our natural thought. That's the way we think. There's always a beginning of something. And so when we come to this passage and we read in the beginning, what we're actually looking at is a phrase that simply says in beginning. That means that it's actually the beginning of beginnings. We're not looking at the beginning of creation. Genesis does that. Genesis looks at the beginning of creation when it says in the beginning God created. But in this particular passage, we're not talking about the foundations of the world. We're not talking about the creation account. We are talking about in beginning. The true eternal beginning, eternity past is what we're looking at here. And it's crucial that we understand this because this is the backdrop to everything that we're about to read. When we look at this passage and it says, In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. Those things took place in beginning, in eternity past. Now, a couple of things that does right here. First of all, it points to the eternality of Christ. He is actually eternal the same way the Father is eternal. By necessity, he must be this. For us to look at this passage and it says, in the beginning, anything that takes place after this means that whoever is is at play here, whoever the topics of the particular text we're looking at, it has to mean that they were present in eternity past. Friends, there is no creature that can claim they were in beginning. None. Not a single one. The angels cannot say that. We, cannot, we do not know for certain when the angels, angels were created, but we are certain that they indeed were created. That they are infinitely lower than Christ. They are infinitely lower than God. But this one that we speak of actually possessed the eternality, that same eternity, that same eternity past that the Father had, that the Godhead had. And so everything we're going to look at, I want you to understand, this is not something that happens in Genesis chapter 1. This is looking far beyond that, far past it. It's going back before the foundation of the world, things that we have difficulty comprehending. And I am so delighted that we come to the Scriptures and God reveals things to us that our minds actually cannot comprehend in full. We simply look at them and we say, by faith we understand that there is an eternity past from which you have been and that you have brought us to the present moment we are in today. And so, in beginning was the word. Now, this is very interesting language here. In the beginning was the word. I mean, especially when you consider the book that we're in. The book of John has many, many names for Christ. we talked about some of them last week. He is the the, um, light of the world. He is the resurrection in the life. He is the way, the truth in the life. He is the bread of life. He is the true vine. Each and every one of these are names that John could have chosen. And it's very interesting that he chooses this word, the, just an incredibly interesting word, almost to the point when we think about it, I and mean, it's like, how unique is that? Why? Why would you choose this, this word, word? Why would you pick this? And there are a couple of reasons I would point out to you. Um, first and foremost, it, it is a medium of manifestation. And I'm going to go, be honest with you. I'm pulling this from um, one of my favorite commentators named A.W. Pink. He deals with this. And, and this is an incredibly difficult and interesting thing that John writes to us. He's writing to us to convey that there was one who came to make clear who the father actually was. And I want to make this point real quickly before we get into these, that apart from God sending his son, we would have no comprehension of his person. He's simply could not be known and i would argue that even into the old testament the reason the old testament is written is so that we might have an accurate account leading in to the actual word coming and dwelling among us each and everything in the old testament points us looking to the future looking to christ who would come and rescue for himself a people The whole sacrificial system is pointing to Christ. The tabernacle is pointing to Christ. The miracles that we see in the Old Testament, the judgments, the wrath, all of those things are pointing to the word that would come to make clear to us who God actually is. And so when John picks this word, he does so intentionally. He is attempting to point out, making abundantly clear to us that if we desire to know intimately the Father, there is only one means by which we can go. And it is christ so three things that we can understand from john choosing the word word he is first and foremost a medium of manifestation meaning that christ has made manifest the invisible god that from christ coming we have actually perceived and seen the invisible god that apart from him coming in this form there would be no way for us to understand and grasp him in full and i will be honest with you we see this even in the old testament Now, that may rub some the wrong way because that's before the incarnation. But we serve a God who is from the beginning. He is eternal, which means that He can be in any moment of human history at any time He so desires. And so when we look throughout the Old Testament passages and we see men who see and talk with God, but Scripture makes abundantly clear no one sees God and lives. Who do they see? They see Christ. All these grand moments in the Old Testament, we have Jacob wrestling with God. Who is he wrestling with? He is wrestling with the incarnate God, the Word made manifest that we can know the Father. All throughout the Old Testament, there are very clear pictures of this. We call him Christophanes. He makes himself known, he makes the Father known. And so he is indeed the word. He is the medium of manifestation. Secondly, he is the means of communication. Christ as the word is the divine transmitter communicating to us the life and love of the Father. Friends, the revelation that came when Christ cried for the first time, when he he, as an infant cried into human history was one of the grandest moments of revelation that God has ever given his people. And the beauty that we have even today, just as a side note, that that God sent the word to make manifest and to communicate the Father to us and then by his grace preserved accurate accounts in, from it in the word, the scriptures that we have today is an incredible grace to us. Because friends, there are many that claim to have some grand uh, encounter with Christ. I need no grand encounter. I have the Holy Scriptures. The grandest of encounters that men can have with Christ is found in an accurate record of the word dwelling among us. He is the means of communication. And so when we come to the Scriptures and we see Jesus speak, what we're seeing, what we're hearing is the Father speaking through the Son. That by his grace, he communicates to us the life and the love of the Father. He makes it abundantly clear. Friends, if we approach Christ in the New Testament, we have everything we need to know about the Father. He came to make it clear. We'll deal with that at a later time in in this particular book, but by God's grace, he's the means of communication to people who apart from some condescension from him could never know him apart from God, taking on human flesh and dwelling among, coming and dwelling in our sin and our wickedness. He sits and he is separated from it. He never sins in himself, but he sits among our filth so that he might communicate to us the Father. It demanded that he condescend so that we could know him at all. And so when, we, when he is called the word, he is the means of communication. Lastly, I love this. He is the method of revelation. Pink says this, Christ as the word reveals the attributes and perfections of God. How fully has Christ revealed God? He displayed his power. He manifested his wisdom. He exhibited his holiness. He made known his grace. He unveiled his heart in Christ and nowhere else, listen to this, is God fully and finally told out. The fullness of God can be known in Christ. We'll see why in a moment. But what grace, and I really do want to stop right here because I'm going to be honest, this whole, first, uh, this whole introduction to the book of John is jam-packed theologically. And what we can be prone to do is stop and, and fail to think about the practicality, how this affects how we live. But to be real honest, nine times out of 10, the scripture is, scripture's aim is to actually change how you think. Because I am convinced, and you've heard me say, that our theology affects our doxology. What we believe about God affects how then we live. Have you thought and considered for just a moment the depth of the riches of the grace of God, that he would send Christ, that he would leave the splendor and majesty of heaven, that he might come be the word to you? that he might come and in his infinite grace bestow the full knowledge of God to you by living a perfect, sinless life, fulfilling the law perfectly, that you may have someone that you can lean on for salvation because you fail time and time again. He is indeed the word. And apart from Christ being the word, dwelling among us, making the Father known, friends, we would still be ignorant of him. Perhaps there would be glimpses, but there would never be a full telling out of the Father. He could not be known. But in God's grace, from the beginning, he has made a plan to which he was going to send the Son to dwell amidst our sinful state to make known to us the holiness of God. It's an astounding thing. Just the the choosing of this simple phrase, he is the word, And I would like to add real quickly that if you aim to have an encounter with Christ apart from the Holy Scriptures, apart from what we see revealed here, and if you long to know God by any means other than Christ, you will come up dry. You will find something that is a figment of your imagination. The only way that we can know God, the only way that we can be in right relationship with Him is through the Word, is through Christ. Do not be fooled. There are many that would argue there are various ways, but the scripture makes it abundantly clear. It is only through the word. And so by God's grace, he has given this to us. Now let me give you a couple of a couple of incredible uh, passages in regard to this. One is John fourteen nine, which we'll deal with in the future but John fourteen nine says this Jesus said to him have I been with you so long and you still do not know me. Philip has just asked show us the father. And listen to Jesus' response. Whoever has seen me has seen the father. This is the extent to which he fully tells out the father that if you see me if you know me then you know everything you need to know of the father. I have made him abundantly clear. It's a perfect, perfect moment where Christ says, first and foremost, I am actually divine. Who can represent the father aside from one that possesses everything that he has? I mean, if you look at me, I am a representation of my dad. I mean, I, I have similar gestures. I have similar tones. I have similar things that, that are on my body that, that are from him, but I am not a perfect telling out of him. Christ is the perfect telling out Of the Father. He possesses everything that the Father does. Everything. There is not an inch, there is not the smallest bit of distinction between the Father aside from their personhood. Yes, they are distinct in their persons, but there is nothing that the Father has, the Son does not. Co-equal, co-powerful, co-eternal. And so, in Christ we have the full telling out. In the Word, we have the full telling out of the Father. So, in the beginning was the Word. Notice this next phrase, and the Word was with God. John, you know, you read these things and, I, and it's hard to not be convinced of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Does he makes such clear dividing lines? There is no means that we can read this passage in its proper language that we can walk away with a different understanding that Christ is indeed God. So first and foremost, let's point out this. He was with God. First and foremost, he dwelt in the eternal presence of God. We call this, uh, we call this that divine uh, triunity of love that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I am convinced that what you find here in this particular passage when it says he was with God, it is not making reference specifically to the Father, but it is making reference to the fullness of the Trinity. It is making reference to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit dwelling together perfectly from eternity past. They are together, and yet there is a very clear distinction one from another. Now, this is the mystery of Christianity, that there is indeed one God who distinguishes himself in three persons. He is three persons. Now, in this particular passage, we deal, we deal in particularly with the son. The word was with God. So first and foremost, he, was, he, he dwelt in the eternal presence of God, which by the way, this carries the weight of a peer, one who sits face to face with, who interacts with. And I love the language here because it does have this connotation of interaction that it's not this idea of he's with like the same way, like, I don't know, I, my, my boots are with me. But there's there's actual interaction, there's personal uh, exchange, there's love, there's affection within the Trinity. And so when it says that the word was with God, it is saying that there is interaction here. There is something that's taking place in eternity past. They are dwelling together perfectly. Uh, they are loving each other in perfect unity. The word was with God. It means that he is distinct from him. And that's the incredible weight of, of this phrasing. Because let me just be honest with you, if you stop here and you don't go any further, you would have to assume that the Word is indeed separate from the Father, separate from God. And there are many that would come into this passage and begin to alter some of the original language that you see very clearly in every single manuscript, that there would be some, some shift in this. But the, the, the Scripture does not lend itself to that. There has to be a complete casting away of The actual language that was written for us to come to any other conclusion. So he was with God. Secondly, he was God. Now, this is a very important topic. We're going to deal with this in a couple of ways. But first and foremost, this means that the Word actually possessed full deity in and of himself. He is not an extension of the Father's deity. He is divine in and of himself. That means when Christ came, it wasn't the Father giving away some of his deity, kind of separating himself into the person of Jesus. Instead, it was Christ, the second member of the Trinity, co-equal, co-powerful, co-eternal, coming in and stepping into human time and existence so that he might rescue For himself, a people. And so, the beauty of this is that 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 son, that begotten of the Father, that cherished member of the Trinity, is the one who would step into time and lay down his life on behalf of ruined sinners. Men who have spat in his face, who have rejected him, who with every breath they breathe mar his image. The word was God himself. And he came, the holy, righteous, perfect God came and was born in a feeding trough. I want you to feel the weight of this a little bit here. Because what we see here is this idea of the actual God stepping into human existence. I do not want you to be fooled into thinking that perhaps this is some extension of the Father. The Father actually didn't come, but the Son came. The full deity of God dwelt here on the earth for a season. And by His grace, He revealed Christ to us. And He revealed the Father to us. This is why Jesus actually could represent the Father perfectly. If He was not God, then He could not do it. This is why I go back to this basic statement. If we worship a creature, if Jesus is a creature, then we are all idolaters. We worship a creature rather than the creator. Romans condemns this. So how is it that we worship Christ and are not idolaters? How is it that we worship Christ and we are not men given over to idols, bowing on our faces before creatures or crafted things? He has to be God. That means the entirety of the New Testament that points us to the worship of Christ would be in complete and total contradiction with itself if Christ is not actually God. So when when we look at the scripture and it points us to bow on our faces before Christ, that he would be the sole object of our worship, that would essentially mean that Paul, as he writes, says violate the first commandment. Violate it. That's not what we have here. What we have is a very clear indication that the means by which men are to actually worship God is through the finished work of the Son, by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of God the Father. That's how we worship. Because when we look to Christ as the greatest affection of our heart, as we worship Him and long to be obedient to Him, as we ascribe to Him the highest value in our life, we are looking at the true God and saying, You are our highest value. You are our highest value. Secondly, he is a member of the Trinity. Now, I know I've mentioned this before, but I want to bring it up again because what we have is this idea of, uh, and and this goes back to the conversations that I've had multiple times this week already, that for some reason, the Trinity is just firmly under attack. And I, and I, I must come to the conclusion that the Trinity will always be under attack because if you can undermine that, you can essentially undermine the gospel as a whole. It's a good starting point. And because it is a faith thing, because we look at that and we say, look, I can't fully comprehend and understand this in full, but I am certain that the scripture attests to this, that God the Son is indeed God, that God the Father is indeed God, that God the Holy Spirit is indeed God, yet there is one God. Friends, if, if the Trinity is not what we see in the scriptures, I want to point out and, and make, and make a, a simple statement that salvation is simply not possible. First and foremost, if Jesus is not God, he cannot atone for your sin. That's a very simple way to consider this, but just make it abundantly clear. Uh, It is necessary that the one who comes to mediate on our behalf, to stand in the gap between God and man, must actually possess true humanity and true deity. He must actually be both of those things. If he is not, then we are still dead in our sin. Now let me give you an illustration for that just to make it clear. I've probably used this one before. But if Christ is not God, meaning that if he is not from the beginning, if he is not eternal in and of himself, he could not drink the eternal amount of God's wrath on the cross. He does so in three hours. He drinks an eternal amount of God's wrath in three hours on the cross. When darkness falls, he drinks that cup in full. There's none left for those who had placed their faith in Christ. How then could it be that a creature... One who was created, one who does not actually possess the power and authority over time, how could he do that? He He simply could not. Secondly, if the Holy Spirit is not God, then we find the Holy Spirit essentially being, and nine times out of ten what we find is the Holy Spirit is essentially treated as a force. There's a certain cult that would call themselves Christians. They are certainly not. Um, that truly do treat the Holy Spirit like it is the force, and I'm not using that word lightly. I'm actually saying the force that you would find in Star Wars. That's what they believe the Holy Spirit actually is. It is something that happens outside of um, outside of consciousness, outside of sentience. It is something that just kind of flows and goes where it will. That's not what we see in Scripture. And the reason I point this out to you is because, like I said earlier, the God that we see mentioned in, Genesis, and in John chapter 1 is not making reference specifically to the Father. It is making reference to each and every member of the divine trinity. That God, that Jesus was indeed with God, with the Father, with the Holy Spirit. Secondly, that he is God, that he is a member of that divine trinity. And John in his brilliance in verse two says this, he was in the beginning with God. To restate his point, to make it abundantly clear that this is not something that he is glossing over, but he is simply restating and saying it abundantly clearly. He was in the beginning with God. In the beginning with God. That's a simple statement that, honestly, we've already unpacked, but I just want to reiterate this to you. There is not, like John's not writing something really quickly or flippantly. He is making a statement that is abundantly clear, and we're going to see that in the next phrase as well. So in verse 3, it says this, all things were made through him. This is his acts. One of the beautiful things that we find in this passage is you see a couple of things in regard to evidences of Christ's deity. First and foremost, it is that he is eternal, as we see in the beginning. Secondly, that he had the ability to dwell in the eternal presence of the Father, that he was with God. Thirdly, that he He was actually God. He possessed full divinity. And then the fourth thing is that he is creator. Now, uh, whenever we come to this passage, immediately people will cite Genesis 1, where we see in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And to that I will say yes and amen. We've made it abundantly clear. Jesus is God. You see, in Genesis chapter 1, what we see is the perfect triune God creating You see in Genesis 1-2, the Spirit hovering over the face of the waters. You see God speaking. What is it that he is speaking forth? What is it that he speaks through? It's abundantly clear. John is giving us a grand commentary on Genesis 1. He does it in three verses. He makes it abundantly clear that each and everything that was created was created through Christ, only through him, and that through Christ we have life. Now, I wanna point out a couple of things. Romans chapter 11, verse 36 points this out. I love this. It says, For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. That means in Genesis chapter 1, when God creates, there's a couple of things that is, are happening. First of all, all things that are created are from him, from Christ. Romans 11 is making reference to Christ, worshiping and praising him from everything we've seen from Romans 1 to the end of 11, that what we see here, everything is from him. Secondly, everything is through him that he is the catalyst of creation not a single thing was made apart from him decreeing it to come into existence lastly and this is most important and to him are all things When we look at Genesis chapter, when we look at John chapter 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. It essentially means that everything that has breath, everything that is here on the earth, is to the praise and glory of Christ. Everything is to him, meaning that when he creates, his intended purpose is to receive glory and honor from it. Now, let me make an application here, real quickly. That means that each and every one of us today, by God's grace, He created us. By God's grace, He sustains us. Lastly, that His intention is that He may receive glory and praise from our life. Do not get it backwards. Please. The whole theology of the Scriptures will flip upside down if all of a sudden you are the centerpiece. You are not. All things were created by Him, through Him, and for Him, meaning that your life, its intended purpose, as the one who created you, prescribed is that he might receive glory praise and honor from your life that means your family the purpose of your family is to bring glory and praise to christ secondly it means that your personal life not a single inch of it is not meant to go to the glory of god the father not an inch I love the phrase, there is not a single inch over all creation over which Christ does not cry, Mine. That includes every square inch of your life. There is nothing that is exempt from it. If you are exempting him from something, rest assured you have an idol, that it is your highest affection. And so when we look at the scriptures, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Let me tackle one more thing, one more heresy that tends to erupt in regard to Christ. John reiterates this twice in one verse. All things were made through him. That means each and everything that is in creation, Christ himself made it. The divine trinity made it. And look, it says again, and without him was not anything made that was made. That means each and every created thing, if it was created, was made through Christ. Now, this excludes then Christ being a creature. I'm telling you, there are it's it's astounding to me how many I come in contact with, how many you come in contact with. The phone calls I get are from you. The scripture makes it abundantly clear. It is not up for negotiation. And if you would like to look at the original text, and I would encourage you to do that when someone would tackle what would argue this with you, he cannot be created because without him, nothing was made that was made. Him being essentially means that he cannot have been created. He is the only uncreated son and that by him, we actually may have life. I'm not gonna go into verse four, but I wanna give you two other things real quickly in the, in the original languages that make it clear that this is Factual. So first and foremost, there is one cult, the Jehovah's Witnesses, that would add in in verse verse, um, one, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Now, uh, one of the things that they do in their translations is they argue that um, in the second phrase there, in the word was God, that they add an article there. The issue is the article is not in the Greek at all. Not in the Greek. Secondly, the Greeks did not have an understanding of an indefinite article, meaning that if you looked at this passage in its proper understanding in this phrase, it actually, even if you were to insert an article, would not read, in the beginning was the word, and the word was, uh, and the, and the word was with the God. That's how it would actually read. It can't actually mean, and the word was with a God, or the word was a God. It would actually have to read, and the word was the God. Honestly, even at that point, it just strengthens the argument that we find here in the scriptures. And so I want to make it abundantly clear to you. Anytime someone brings that to you, I would encourage you, take them to the original languages. make it abundantly clear to them that the Christ that we see in the scriptures, that the word that's mentioned here, he is not a created being. He himself is God. That is verified by that particular passage and also verse 3 that says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, here's the question. What's the application for this? I mean, I'll be honest, this is just, this is just proper theology. And is it even, how do, we, how do we translate this into the way that we live our lives today? And that's always the question that I'm asked when it comes to theological issues is how does this actually matter to me right now? I'm gonna be honest with you. If everything we talked about isn't true, then you have no hope. The foundation of every practical thing you do in your life is rooted right here in John 1. If Christ is not God, friends, you are dead in your sin. And my hope this morning is perhaps that you have been encouraged and perhaps made abundantly clear that maybe you will encounter, and I know that you will, encounter someone that would argue this point with you in the future. And that by God's grace, perhaps you can display to them the Christ of the Scriptures. He is not a creature. He is the creator God, worthy of all worship and praise. That every inch of your life is to be devoted to him the same way that it is to be devoted to the Father. That there is not a break there. To worship Christ is to worship the Father rightly. He is the means by which God, the Father, longs for worship. If you worship, you come through Christ. This is made clear by the term that he's given, the word. It's made clear by the fact that he is indeed God. And my prayer is, friends, that as we gather and continue this book, as we look next week at in him was life, and that life was the light of men. As we look at his work, his work is validated by his person. If he is not what we have discussed today, then verses 4 and 5 have no merit. He can't offer us life. He's not the God of life. He can't offer us light. God is light. But because he is who he says he is, because John makes it abundantly clear to us, that everything we see from this point forward in the scriptures, we can rejoice in and have great confidence in because the one who says, I am the good shepherd is the God who created you, is the God who called you out, is the God who loves you dearly and desperately and the God who longs and deserves every ounce of worship from your life.